0: People need to feel safe. I think once people feel safe at work, to be able to tell you what they think, to be able to do what they need to do without fear of any retribution or any punishment, uh, and to know that they're supported, um, then that's when they flourish at work.
1: A podcast for the entrepreneurial, mindful and creative leader. I'm Jim Antonopoulos. I'm Damien Carolla. We're broadcasting from the beautiful Georges building in Collins Street, Melbourne. And this is Fearless. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm really well. How are you going? I'm good. I'm good. You had a good week? I've had a great week and um, I guess uh, like you, Jim, a li- little bit excited to have a-, a good friend of ours, Reg Crawford, here today. Tell us about Reg. I'm
2: excited too.
1: I will. I'll, um, I'll, I'll tell you a bit of his background. So um, Reg is a leadership coach, a team coach and a storyteller. And in terms of his background, he's a highly decorated former Special Forces officer in the Australian SAS who was awarded the United States Bronze Star Medal. Um, Reg is also an advisor to the United Nations and New South Wales Police Com- Commissioner during the Sydney Olympic Games. And he's also had operational service in Rwanda, East Timor, and the Middle East. Uh, during his time, he led units of up to three hundred people, including soldiers from Egypt, UK, and USA. And he's a coach to CEOs, senior management, and board members. And he's currently listed by um, used by listed companies, business schools, and Olympic and World Championship sports to improve leadership and team effectiveness so he's got a, a really amazing background and I guess we're really lucky to have him t- uh, here for today's podcast
2: yeah hi Reg
0: hi guys thanks for having
2: me Oh, it's an absolute pleasure um, we're looking forward to getting to know you I know um, you and Damien know each other really well and um, so yeah I'm really excited about this getting to know you and yeah
1: yeah absolutely. so maybe Reg uh, why don't you start with uh, maybe telling us your story and a bit about your background
0: yeah, I remember moving around a lot as a child. Uh, So different schools, having to make different friends, um, a number of occasions sort of in my first 10 or 12 years of school and uh, where that relates to leadership is it probably made me a bit of a shy person to start with because I was always the one coming into the room of an established group and trying to make my way in that group. But um, I think where it connects with leadership is, and this sort of gets to the argument around um, whether leaders are born or made, And um, there's a lot of recently research around that talks about, it's a bit of both, and I'm a believer of that. Perhaps 70% made, 30% born. And it's not necessarily born, but it's in those early formative years that things happen in your life that sort of impact on your ability to lead. And I I think for me, there are a couple of things that stand out. Certainly the values that were instilled in me by my family. Um, You know, I had as much as we moved around and I found that uncomfortable, I think what it did was to force me out of my shell to get to know people, but my parents as well, and the values with my parents. Um, But also, one of the things that I think had a really big impact on my ability to lead later on in life was my involvement in sport and, and in extracurricular activity at school, because I was always one of these guys who would just stick my hand up for everything and give it a go. But for me, it was that experiential learning you get from being in a team or just throwing yourself into something that you haven't done before and giving it a crack and I think that sort of led me to sort of then when I joined the army uh, in 1984 is to have the confidence to be able to at least get to the start line and be able to do that. Um, I think the next big step in my life was joining, in terms of how the journey started, was joining the Army in 1984. I'd worked in the bank for three years between school. That's where I got my first formal leadership training. And Australian Army officers are trained so well. And I went to a 12-month program at the Officer Cadet School in Portsea, where you end up graduating as someone who (coughs) is trained to lead a group of 30 infantry soldiers, so a platoon of soldiers. And that's pretty much your start point. If you graduate, that's the key outcome of that program, and then off you go. And I remember probably one or two years after coming out of Portsea, I was getting frustrated that I couldn't quite always nail it in terms of leadership. I thought it was something that was an outcome that you would reach, and you'd say, right, I've perfected leadership. But then (laughs) frustrated that you'd make mistakes and... um, have these different experiences and as much of a cliché as it is, the journey for me, it has been very much a journey because I've tried things, I've made mistakes, I've had some success, you adjust the way you lead and you move on and then you come to another fork in the road where you might or might not make a mistake. So it has been a bit of a journey and I think once I realised that I tended to perhaps free my mind a little bit of any tension that I was trying to nail this perfection uh, and really enjoy it. And I've loved every minute of it since.
1: It's an interesting um, lesson there, Reg, because uh, I think we touched upon one of the previous podcasts, um, that thing around making mistakes and and how we evolve through those lessons and sort of letting go of that perfectionism. That's a really, really interesting topic. Do you remember some of those earlier sort of mistakes that kind of shaped your journey?
0: they can be I can't think of anything significant but you just make lots of little mistakes along the way Um, just in terms of some of the decisions you make how you made those decisions how much you consult people um, and and how you engage in people and how they react to that Uh, and seeing you know, some people, I think one of the key things to me is that people, every single person in a team will react differently to something they hear from a leader, and I think a leader's got to be able to understand that certain things will be interpreted one by one way by one person, and could be almost totally differently by other people, and so it's just those little nuances that, you know, so you'd say something to some somebody and, um, and try to lead and influence them in a certain way and it just wouldn't work. And,
1: yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a really sort of interesting topic. I mean, it's almost like they're not so much mistakes, they're sort of corrections as you go along the journey. You learn yeah. what works, what doesn't, and then you sort of take that back into the next process. And there's probably no other way to learn, is there, other than getting into it?
0: No, and I think it requires a level of insight. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call myself the, the most insightful person around, but I think I was always able to be able to understand that perhaps next time I do that, there's a better way of doing it. And so yeah, it is these little corrections, little adjustments. So if you if you think of the journey and it's a road that you're traveling down, sometimes you go a little bit off the road and sometimes you come back onto the road and you, you waver a little bit. And I think the issue is understanding that nobody's perfect and we're all going to make mistakes. And so you've got that level of awareness and it's really what you do about the mistake. Uh, and those times when you need to adjust your approach. That matter.
2: How important is um self awareness in leadership?
0: I think it's really important. I think I said before that. I think I'm somewhat self aware, um, and I think I was aware enough to be able to identify those sorts of things where I'd made a mistake, and how people interpreted what I said, or how well or well, uh, or not well that I influenced somebody in a certain circumstance. I think uh, and. Damien knows the guy that I'm gonna talk about is a guy called Drew Ginn, Triple Olympic gold medalist, um, who I met about 12 years ago. And so this was after I'd left the army. And one of the things I think that makes him a champion is his thirst for knowledge. and um, and, and he just wants to know everything about everything. And I love that about him. But what it forced me to do when we met is that I was quite, taken by his curiosity in what I've done before. And I think he helped me take that, and it was post my time in the army as well, he helped me take that level of awareness a lot deeper and really forced me to understand some of the things I did and what happened, but not necessarily, not just what happened, but what was the impact and what was the meaning of what happened in certain stages of my life and certain mm. things that I've been involved in mm. in the military and I think that really heightened my self-awareness of awareness. Yeah.
2: Um, and ability to reflect I imagine too that's uh, a skill so um, sorely missing in leadership circles the ability to just reflect on self but also reflect on back on what you've just done or what your team just done as well yeah
0: well I think part of the process that we're trained as young army officers is um, that you must take time to we used to call it debriefs and but it was really a reflective space that was built into a process and a rhythm yeah and it was part of the rhythm and so i think that we've always had that i I think now that i'm out of the military um i I think it's about having and finding the time and space to do it i I don't necessarily get involved in anything too formal in terms of reflection i meditate Mm. sometimes Uh, And I practice mindfulness sometimes, probably not often enough. But I find that just short, sharp bursts of it every now and then, just finding little bits of time where I can pull back and just clear the space and and have some time to do that. But even if it's just less formal than that, of just making sure that my life isn't too busy, that it's cluttered with rubbish that doesn't allow me time to do that. and so if I can just find periods of time now, just short spaces of time where I can just think, that to me is tremendous value.
1: Which um, It's actually a really good uh, example for, for others that are listening to the podcast. People have an assumption around you have to sit there for an hour and do a meditation. It's not actually always what it's about. If you can actually find those short, sharp, practical periods of time between meetings between uh, work and home and and it's got to be pretty pragmatic and i think you're sort of reminding us that it's actually got to work that stuff so people Mm. have a a big assumption you've got to sit here for 45 minutes and work through a meditation program and that's great for if you can commit to it but i think those finding opportunities to practice being more mindful throughout the day kind of has a massive impact on people's performance is that something you've noticed.
0: I was probably one of those people who used to get frustrated that, well, I haven't got time to meditate because that will require half an hour, 45 minutes or an hour. But really, when I learned how to do it for a couple of minutes, it was just to sit, relax and just clear the, clear the mind a little bit, it was great. And then I think the other lesson I learned was to, it doesn't have to be a formal process. It can be just making sure that you allow some time and uh, to think.
1: Yeah, Rich, one one other sort of observation I've known about you is that um, you've always been an incredibly open leader. You've been really open to learning and observation and I think that's fundamental um, in terms of the the growth journey and how we evolve through our various leadership roles. You've always been really open and humble about taking on new knowledge and um, just being open to new ways of doing things. Is that something you've always sort of had from back in the day, that openness?
0: I think so. I think it sort of gets back to the comment that I made earlier about understanding that you can't be perfect, certainly not all of the time. And so you, if you accept that you will make mistakes, um, I think then that puts you in a space where you can be open to, okay, when I do, what am I going to do about it? What does it mean? And, um, and being in that spot. But to me, I think it really gets down to the linkage between authenticity and leadership. Um, I've seen some people be good at being other than themselves for certain periods of time. What do I mean by that? You can see people act in a certain way and, uh, and get away with it. But the reality is, and certainly in my environments that I was often often high pressure, Uh, environments, dangerous environments, environments where um, there was a lot of chaos is that if you try to fool anybody by being someone other than yourself then you're not going to get away with it you'll just muck it up and uh, to me I I think it was about learning to be comfortable with who you are and being confident about who they are having a strong values base uh, by which you lead and just being you and look um, Just like any other leader, I'm not for everybody. Um, But I think I've done a pretty good job in being able to lead most people. Uh, But we all have people who don't resonate with us at times and we all see people we don't resonate with um, that can be effective leaders, but uh, yeah.
2: How important are values to leadership? Um, You mentioned it a few times. Um, I've met a a couple of leaders in my career who have questioned the need for organisational values Team, executive team values have questioned the need for them. Um, I've met the exact opposite in my time as well. Um, Organisations that are intrinsically values aligned or values led. Um, how important has, have values been to you? Uh, Damien and I spoke about it at length last week.
0: Uh, i be interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I, I, I think for a leader they are critical Is my view now because they they help a leader um, talk about understand even identify with what they stand for and I think every leader has to stand for something Um, for me therefore values are really important Um, but I think also when you talk about leadership really you're trying to influence people and most people will have, even if they're not stated. For me, it's not an issue of necessarily overtly stating these are my values, and it's an interesting question about organisational values and whether they work or not. Um, I'll touch on that really quickly, if I may. My view is that I don't know how many organisations I've been in, where you walk through the halls and you'll go into a boardroom or you'll go into a reception and I'll have your four organisational values. It's funny that 80% of them are the same as the last organisation and the last one and the last one and the last one, but different people or different organisations live them in a different way. So it's really not necessarily about overtly stating those values, it's about how people interpret those. And to me, the organisations that get the best results out of organisational values are the ones who help people understand what's important and therefore how do I need to behave and what does it mean? And and understand the meaning of those values rather than sticking a pretty good looking embossed paper up on the wall. Um, I think for the leader, it's the same thing. I think by what a leader says and what they do, essentially what they stand for comes out um, in the background as driven by values. Yeah,
2: And it uh, it empowers, they empower people to make decisions as well um, and be autonomous.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that they're great for guiding purpose. Um, And to me, um, you know, one of my values has always been, I think if I've got a hallmark for anything, it's about always doing the right thing. Because as a leader, that was really important. Because it builds trust from that leadership perspective is that people trust a leader who is consistent and who tries to do the right thing. Now, what's behind that? It's often the leader's values. People can agree or disagree with your values, but most of us have some common values. And so if you lead from a values-based, I think it's a lot harder to be criticised and a lot harder to be denied if you lead from something that comes from a good place. And it just demonstrates that authenticity, but also integrity of a leader as well. And I think you get back to the last question, Damien, of, you know, um, to me, whilst I don't overtly state here are my values, um, it really does help that openness of a leader, who people see me for who I am, and they know what I stand for by what I do and what I say, and they can choose to follow me. Um, yeah, and,
1: and I guess uh, you, you sort of speak about um, some of those scenarios when you've, um, you know, you've constantly been in these high chaos situations. Um, can you remember any times where um, people have really pushed hard against? your values or situations where, you know, there's, there's been a bit of tension around a, a values conflict where you've had to sort of stay pretty firm. Can you sort of think of any um, moments like that?
0: Probably uh, rather than getting pushback, I think where you see this values conflict me and it sort of gets to the question of how do you deal with difficult people or how do you deal with certain people in certain circumstances, particularly the hard ones. I can remember quite well a story from Timor in 2002 where um, I had to send a young officer home from East Timor because he did something that was very much against my values and he showed a lack of integrity and honesty uh, and he was something that would just made him look to me and to others very untrustworthy and it was just a conflict. It made my ability to make that decision to send him home and with significant consequences to him um, and later even threats of violence against me for doing it, um, that it made it a lot easier for me because it was one of those ones where as I was coming from a strong values base of base of honesty and doing the right thing and integrity and he went against that and that made it easier. Um, but it, it was very much one of those situations where there was a, a real values conflict. So, I, th- I think the harder ones are where there's a values conflict where you believe in your value and the other person believes in their value and that there's a little bit of grey in between. It's not all black and white. And I think to me, it's about those situations where you can, yeah, you know, that's where we need to have a discussion and have a chat about that and work through and try and find some common ground and because Often that there is some commonality in people's values, even if their stated values are a little bit different. Um, if that makes sense, it's about sort of just finding that common ground and where they perhaps can meet.
1: Yeah. So I, I guess uh, you're you're really honed that skill of having that dialogue and just giving them the opportunity to sort of come into that process. It's not something you can really force, I guess. It's just having that conversation and discussion and and looking for the commonality. Yeah, I was going to ask that.
2: How do you, just to elaborate on that question, how do you sit down with someone and and tell them you've just acted with a complete lack of integrity? How do you um, manage that conversation?
0: Um, Sometimes it's hard. um, And you've just got to bite the bullet and, and have that moment. I find often, um, you know, to be able to give people's feedback, I think both parties need a bit of time to reflect on that, of what's happened, and so if you've got time and space to do it, uh, the preparation for a leader to have that tough conversation is really important as well because you want to be accurate and you're talking about something that potentially is quite offensive and quite affronting to somebody. Um, like I said, where there was a clear, breach of values or a clear conflict in values and I knew I was right and I knew the other person was wrong, it's a lot easier. Where there's that grey area, I think you've just got to be able to do that. But I think, to me, it's about honesty in conversation. It's a little bit about dealing with poor performers. I mean, the poor performer who's done something terribly wrong, like the example I gave you, needs to be dealt with swiftly and it needs to be dealt with harshly. Uh, because you can't accept those sorts of things because they can have knock-on effects on other people and the rest of the team and the rest of the organisation. It's the people who are trying and uh, are giving everything but aren't quite measuring up or or making mistakes but doing it honestly and having a go. They're the conversations that I find um, become a little bit harder. but to me, the principle of honesty is always important. I see a lot of organisations where people find it really hard to have these ongoing performance evaluations and have these conversations and even just small accountability conversations with someone about, hey, listen, what happened yesterday we need to have a chat about. Because to me, um, they do it because they're scared of they'll look stupid or that they'll hurt the other person's feeling or that there'll be a consequence of that and it's just not fun, it's conflict. Um, but to me, honesty is the best way of dealing with that. If you can have that honest conversation and tell it how it is, then that opens it up for a conversation to see whether that makes sense to the other person or not. And generally, when people, when you do it well, other people realise before you even have to say what the consequence is that they've made a mistake or that they've done yeah. something wrong. I find
2: that really powerful. Yeah, it is the middle; those, that middle ground is really difficult to navigate, isn't it? It's um, you know, good people trying to do the right thing, values on values, underperforming. Yeah, yeah that's difficult. Right. It's probably yeah. the, the previous conversation with uh, someone who's lacking with a, acting with a lack of integrity seems easy. Yeah, well, <laughs> well
0: it was in a sense. Yeah. Um, I, I think the only th- other thing I'd add to that, I think it's about what, what basis or what foundation do you come from to those conversations? Um, I think it's very easy for some people to come from a, 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 a foundation of there's going to be a consequence in this and you're going to be fired or the, because you didn't measure up. Um, now, in some circumstances it was clear that that's what had to happen, but in many circumstances my approach is always around that challenge and supportive environment where you, you, you help someone. And what, what, could we, what could I help you with to get better? What training do you need? And to always come from that first, eventually you might get go down a path where you throw a lot of resources and a lot of time and someone still doesn't measure up. And that's when you need to make those harder decisions of perhaps letting someone go or removing them from a team or from an environment or a situation. But again, if you do that honestly and do it from a basis of integrity of I'm actually putting effort into and I genuinely want this person to get better and I'm gonna help them and you do as, as much as you can. Um, I think it becomes a lot easier for everybody. I think the people that I've dealt with in those circumstances like that have always appreciated that honesty, but they've always appreciated the foundation from which it came from is that they tried to help me. And they realise, many of them realise that they get to a point where they realise it's not working or that they're not measuring up and then the conversation starts to become a little bit easier because they understand that it's that the best outcome is. Yeah, yeah that's really amazing.
1: Yeah, it's uh, you raise, a, I guess, an interesting observation, Reg. Um, you've had some you know, fairly serious roles over your career and I guess I'm really getting the fact that this stuff isn't always easy regardless of how long you've been doing it for. Um, we all grapple with um, this type of conversation around values and and making those hard calls and and you've had a a fairly big career behind you but I guess it's in some ways it's it's affirming to notice that um, we we all still struggle with this stuff regardless of of what you've done in your career it actually never gets essentially easier to make hard calls and tough calls I mean, we're still human
0: (laughs) absolutely and it, it it's about sometimes you make mistakes it's about what you do about that mistake um, sometimes leadership isn't even fun um, because it is a responsibility and I think the moment that I realized that um, that there's good and bad to it and I think that the good and the enjoyment of leadership far outweighs the distasteful moments absolutely but yeah I think you make a choice to take on that responsibility and what comes with it um, and to me that you know that that certainly I remember a moment in about 2000. And 2000, 2001, where I was talking to a, a, a leader who said um, I was just about to go into a command position where I'd just been given command of a military unit, and they said to me, "You're going to hate it uh, because you know there's so much of this. This happens. You spend your time performance evaluating and and dealing with the problems and all of those things, and, and you're going to hate it." And I thought, "Well, how can you say that?" because there are certainly going to be times where you're going to love it as well. And that was a moment for me where I actually remember thinking, I can make a choice here. I can go into this job for two years, put my heart and soul into it and come out hating it. But what's the sense in that? Um, Or I can make a choice that there will be times when it's just not going to be fun. Um, And sometimes it can get really lonely. There've been times when I felt really alone as a leader, but far, far outweighed by the moments of um, yeah, being able to influence someone's life and have a positive impact on an outcome, on positive impact on individuals and teams. It's just so much more satisfying.
1: Can you remember some stories there where you've, you've sort of mentored um, young leaders into, into roles and sort of some of the, I guess, the game-changing moments that you really get a big buzz out of?
0: Well, the one that comes to mind is that I was recently invited to a closing down of a military unit dinner Uh, and I looked on the invitation and the commanding officer of the unit was one of my lieutenants when I was a lieutenant colonel commanding that very unit and I remember going to this person's march out parade, graduation parade from the Royal Military College and meeting the group of young officers that were coming to work for me the following year and saying hello to all of them and, and just wanting to meet them and tell them I'm their new boss and, uh, and you know, they should look forward to coming and working with us. And uh, this person was a really enthusiastic young officer, what like most of them were. But then to see further on, we had a great couple of years together, but then to see, and then I moved on, but that person then got promoted and promoted and promoted. And now to see that they're commanding a unit that I commanded, and they were on the bottom of this inv- invitation, was really satisfying because I thought, you know what? I've had an influence on that person's career, and that person is someone that you know I I I trusted, uh, and that I helped get better, and now they're doing a really good job. And I actually felt it's almost like that stewardship, and it reminded me of the fact that yeah, it was for two years. My unit, I was the commander, I was responsible, but it's not about me, it's about the unit. And now, someone really competent that I know and that I help train and develop is commanding it, and well done them.
1: Yeah, great. Reg, just um, you touched upon something that is probably lies at the heart of leadership. It's not about me, it's actually about the unit, it's not about my ego and, and how I can look good, it's actually about how do I serve. people around me that's a a, a, it's almost a fundamental it's almost the DNA of of where to start when you're thinking about this term leadership so something you could sort of expand on in in terms of your experiences uh, around around that mindset
0: yeah well I think that you've asked me a similar question before Damien about how you know what, what are the key things and what makes a good leader into a great leader and you know to me I think there are there are a number of things but that One in particular, um, to me is one of the key ones, is it's, uh, a leader's gotta be trusted. Um, And how does a leader become trusted and and maintain trust of people? And uh, to me, it's about a leader who helps people understand that, well, and and who's selfless in what they do. I, I think selflessness in a leader is a key criteria. Because if a leader appears to be or is self-serving, and it becomes about them, um, leaders have got to have confidence, but not to a point where it becomes about ego and self-serving behaviour. Um, it's, it's got to be selfless, because when people see that someone is in something for themselves, they lose trust in that person, and it, you, the leader becomes untrustworthy. Or because people then start to doubt whether a leader is doing something for them or not and if they see behaviour where a leader is clearly doing something for themselves then people switch off and stop following and uh, so it also gets to the heart of integrity is that it's got to come from that right place Um, because people need to feel safe i think once people feel safe at work to be able to tell you what they think to be able to do what they need to do without fear of any retribution or any punishment uh, and to know that they're supported um, then that's when they flourish at work. And so to me, if, 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 if it's about you, then your default will be, well, they made a mistake, they've made me look bad. And therefore, I have to deal with that because me looking bad is, is not good. <clears throat> but if you can look at it from the other perspective, is that they made a mistake, what can I do to help them because it's about them, not me? I think that's when, again, when people see a leader who does that, they're more inclined to follow by a long way.
1: Wow. And that's a, it's a direct connection to the high performance, isn't it? I mean, if you're giving people the permission to be themselves and they've got a safe environment, they're not having to look over their back. Yeah. And,
0: yeah. I, 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 um, I often say to people, you know, a leadership behaviour where there is, uh, there's a carrot and or a stick, um, well, there's a third element to it as well. What's a person doing if they've got the stick behind them and they're getting whipped uh, all of the time? then they're looking behind them and worried. They're looking over their shoulder and not focusing, um, not looking forward. A person that's looking at a carrot um, is just looking at a carrot. There's got to be something more than that. It's got to be what's ahead of the carrot. Which direction are we going? So I think it's about sort of understanding that sometimes you need a carrot, sometimes you need a stick, but everybody needs a different flavoured carrot, if I can use that analogy, because everybody has different under... Uh, different motivations, different aspirations, different dreams, desires, fears, and therefore they you can't treat them all the same. So you have to understand that, but too much of the stick, they'll never focus on where we're going together.
2: Yeah, and you are got to be able to see beyond the carrot as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Put the carrot out of focus and see what lies on the horizon. One of my team actually, and I, this meant a lot to me actually, this year she said that we've created a safe space for new thought. And that meant a lot to me, that she felt safe to bring new ideas to the table, uh, new innovations to the table, whatever they might be. Yeah. Um, the, your comment around um, making people feel safe uh, really resonated. And I remember uh, Taryn's comment earlier in the year, and that really meant a lot to me as a, as a business owner, that we've been able to create something like that, um, more so than ac- other, other types of accolades. Mm. Um,
0: because i think that that's because where the true power of a team and a relationship really comes into play is that when people feel safe they will be themselves and you know you've hired them or you've developed them to be themselves and because they're talented so really what you're allowing them is to be that self that talented passionate self um any leadership behaviour, any, even within teams, any team behaviour that discourages that. So if we're sitting around in a team environment and I say what I think and somebody, it doesn't even have to be the leader, punishes you, belittles you, humiliates you for you being yourself and trying to express what you feel, which is important for all of us to be able to do, then they will feel unsafe about doing it again. And when that happens, everybody clams up, and uh, that's when you, you essentially inhibit any creativity, you inhibit um, motivation, and uh, it just doesn't work. Mm.
2: How, do you do, how do you build trust and high performance at scale? Um, mm. You, sorry, the number of people in a platoon, soldiers in a platoon? About 30. About 30. Um, and then what's the next scale up from there? Oh, I would be a company a or a squadron, squadron, maybe 100
0: to 150. Yeah, how do there? you do that at scale? Well, I think that um, just like a lot of businesses, the military has a span of control or a span of command. Um, that I think that you've got to be mindful of that, is that you, know, you step up from being a leader of 30 people to a leader of 150 to a leader of four or 500, whatever it might be, is that at a different levels your ability to touch everyone um, is somewhat limited I still think that leaders the best leaders make the effort to have some sort of touch and stay in touch with and get to know uh, everyone and some people do that well and some don't but I think the key thing is that you've got to understand that other people who are now going into roles that you were once in looking after the small team now that you're looking after a handful of teams Um, that's where you've got to put your focus to say that well I need to make sure that they're competent and they're ready and they're supported in doing that and it's so it's very much about that relationship you have with each of those people. I remember um, you know I commanded an SAS troop which is the same size as a platoon roughly about 30 guys and in that were four teams. Now it was a pretty intimate environment where I, I knew everybody well and I had a direct impact on most of what happened. But I had team leaders uh, who would do the day to day and would have a significant leadership role in the day to day as well. But then, when I went up to the next level and I had three troops of four teams, my ability to then go down and influence each of those teams a little bit different. So, whilst I still had those, they had their team commanders, I had people above that, um, you know, three or four troop or um, platoon type commanders who worked for me now that I'd been in a position just as them a few years earlier, four or five years earlier. And so it's about that relationship, you have them and making sure that you develop them so that they do what you know they need to do because you've been in that situation before. So, Some people find it really hard (coughs) to let go, Um, some people find it a little bit easier. I I think it's about that awareness, about where do you fit now? as a leader because at different stages of your life you fit in different places. Mm.
2: Can you tell us an instance of where you've had to make uh, a critical decision where you kind of, um, and most leaders have their backs up against the wall at certain points Mm. and they've got to to make a critical decision and it's, you've felt that it's completely in your lap.
0: Well, the, the moment that springs to mind 17th of April 2003, Western deserts of Iraq. Uh, I was commanding a coalition forward support base. Uh, within that I had a, a predominantly an American um, uh, predominantly American soldiers. Uh, I remember that morning a routine vehicle security patrol went out from our perimeter um, and about 10 minutes after they'd been out, we received the radio message to say that one of the vehicles had rolled over. Uh, hit a mound in the desert and uh, there were a couple of very critical casualties coming in. About uh, 15 minutes later when the casualties arrived, uh, unfortunately Corporal Travis Rivero from the Florida National Guard was pronounced dead on arrival back at our location. But his sergeant, Sergeant James Garrison, was the guy who was critically injured out of significant um, head trauma. Uh, Now, to me, there are fairly well-established rules about military casualty evacuation and and even timelines about um, how quickly you need to get somebody to different levels of first aid or surgery and advanced surgery to give them the best chance of surviving. And we knew, stuck out in the middle of the Western Desert in Iraq, that um, it was going to be impossible to get Jim back to the surgery that he needed for his head trauma. Uh, anywhere near the time frame that was traditional to give yourself the best chance of saving his life, and that was a moment in my life, and this is when I was awarded the United States Bronze Star Medal for my leadership that day. Was the moment when I had to make a decision. You know, um, there's a process that I should follow, and there's a process that I could follow, but it's not going to work. Um, so what do I do? Do I make a choice that um, Jim's going to die, probably? Uh, or do I try to find a way? And that's that moment in me I think that defined my career when I thought I've got to do the right thing here. I've got to try to save this guy's life. And it wasn't just me. There were about uh, you know, a number of people that day who contributed significantly. I was lucky that I had a, a very capable surgical team located with me who kept him alive. Um, but I remember that day, and some people call this luck, and I think that there may have been an element of luck. I think at that moment is when I really felt backed into a corner. But when I was backed into that corner, I think that you, make, you have choices. You can stay there in the corner and probably get beaten and just accept the situation for what it is. Um, but I just couldn't put my hand on my heart and not at least try to do something and so the surgeons kept him alive and out of nowhere um, I happened to look up to the sky and saw at about 15,000 feet a large underbelly of an aircraft lying above us and I grabbed a communicator that I had with me who was able to talk to aircraft and I said to him can you see if that guy is a friendly aircraft and see if they could help us. And they made communications and uh, 10 minutes later that aircraft landed on the airfield next to us. We loaded Jim onto a plane and he was back on a surgical table at an advanced surgical facility in Jordan and ultimately moved on to uh, Germany and then back to Walter Reed in the States. We had him on a table within about two hours and 10 minutes from the time of injury. And that cut off time was, you know, within two hours you've really given the best chance of getting them, um, saving their life. And we were looking at about four hours initially if we'd followed the process and just accepted that the process would play out and he'd probably die. And to me, it was just that reminder of, um, again, who I am as a leader, that uh, it's about, you know, it's not about me, it's about actually caring for someone else and doing whatever you can to help someone else in that circumstance. And I just couldn't put my hand on my heart and not try Um, And whether it was luck, I'm sure there was a bit of luck in it, but I think there was a bit of creativity in it because we just saw something and said, what if? Um, But I I think as well, it just reminded me, someone said to me recently, there's always a way if you look hard enough. And it was a reminder of that, that there was, we found a way that day. And And Jim Garrison lives um, happily ever after today.
2: And you kind of navigated the rules. You challenged the, the, the protocol a little bit. You knew how to, where to move within that at that moment.
0: Yeah, well, what happened at the same time, concurrently, we'd activated that process and had an aircraft already getting ready to fly from Jordan to pick him up. But I, so I knew that, but it just wasn't going to work. I, I think had we let that happen... A couple of hours later, a few hours later he would have been dead. So it was about, um, well that's not going to work, I'm, I'm following it, but one of those moments where you say, well, but the rules aren't going to work in this circumstance. Um, and so just find a way around it.
1: So, so Reg, what I'm really intrigued with is um, how, do, how do leaders make decisions under uh, really in really difficult situations, and really hostile situations. Is that something that you can learn and, and practice? And, and I guess where did you learn that, some of those key decision-making uh, processes under really difficult scenarios?
0: i, I true believer that it's something you can learn. And I was very lucky that being brought up um, through a military system where you uh, spend most of your time training for real-life operations and you're given opportunities to be exposed to a variety of different circumstances that present different challenges under different environments and so you become used to um, being able to operate in somewhat of a chaotic environment and being exposed to certain things and whilst not encouraged to make mistakes, often being able to get away with some mistakes and learn from those mistakes without the consequences being as as significant as they might be in an operational environment. Um, And so I can't recall the number of times that I was placed in tough decision-making scenarios in training so that when I get to these situations, like when I was in the Western Desert of Iraq in 2003 where the decision-making in a sense came quite natural to me of, What are the options? What can I do? Um, What will work? What won't? And we tried a few things to that point that day um, and and were searching for other ideas. It might have been the last idea I had that day, but it was one of those ones where I thought, well, we might as well test this one out and, and give it a go. And we were lucky that that guy, one, we could talk to him, two, that he was happy to land. Um, but uh, it it came from a suite of choices that I think that you're trained to develop.
2: A lot of people, I think the concept of training um, for high performance is really fascinating. A lot of people in the corporate world, you know, they use the term BAU, business as usual. It's turning up to work at 9am, going home at 6pm or leaving the office at 6pm and then getting comfortable with that rhythm. And forgetting that, um, you know, training for, hi- for high performance within a time-blocked period, whether it be 9 to 6 or 10 to 3 or 12 to 2, um, is actually just as equally in- important as establishing that day-to-day BAU rhythm. Um, can we talk about the con- that concept a little bit? I'm really fascinated by what do you do outside of the thing that you do that complements and even teaches you that to play at that high performance level. Are there other types of uh, training that you do? And it's the obvious thing in the SAS. Um, I'm actually interested in what other things you do in the SAS to allow you to go from practice training to reality really quickly.
0: Yeah. Well, I think in a sense, me, my experience in the military, we were pretty lucky because our job was to train for our job was to be successful on operations but there aren't always operations going on and so therefore your job your business as usual was to train for a circumstance or a set of circumstances or something that was even unknown Um, but to train for that so essentially full-time training for a number of years before I even got the chance to go on operations and therefore In a sense, we're very lucky to do that because we weren't a profit-making business. We were a preparedness business. Being prepared to do something at a later date. We don't know where, we don't know when, but just be prepared to do that. So really we could align everything we did to trying different ideas and doing what we need to do to get ready for that. Whereas a lot of businesses, you know, one of the key drivers is profitability. And so therefore, if they are training rather than winning business engaging clients winning clients uh engaging with those clients making profit then um, often the the challenge is that we can't afford to train because the business as usual is about preparing to make a profit i, I think the answer is that um well it's, it's twofold i think businesses have a choice they have a choice that they don't train uh and i think that They will accept then that the people they recruited are the people who might not get much better because they haven't been developed and therefore they will continue to be what they are and you get what you get. Or you can invest in people. I think it has great impacts on motivation as well as the talent of the people but even more importantly the capability of the organisation, be that a small team or a business. And I think the investment made in that has better outcomes. They're able to do their business as usual better because they are more motivated and they are more talented. That said, I think that the answer also is that um, short spurts and short training experiences are just as good as long ones where I had years of training experiences, um, rather than and certainly better than nothing at all. So it's about me being able to make those decisions. So I think, right, first choice made, do I invest or do I not? And if the choice is to invest, um, then how much can I afford to invest in terms of time and money? But certainly knowing that the more I invest and the more time I, I, I allocate to doing that. What you do, I think, has to be aligned to what the outcomes of the business are. For me, it was about, you know, we had to be technically proficient in things like weapon handling and shooting and also formation drills and tactics. But we also um, required our offices, you know, me in particular, is that a lot of what I look back and say was that how to make decisions and under pressure. That's what I was talking about before. But if the business's job is to make their profitability by sales, then um, you know, the, the training, well, the, the training needs to be al- aligned to the outcome. And to me, I think the critical thing, and this gets back to Kolb's learning cycle, experiential learning cycle is to say that don't make it mundane, routine, boring training in a classroom, not all the time at the very least. I think what made me and the SAS a little bit different is that we were deliberately exposed to circumstances that were out of the box, that were unique and uh, and different and challenging and even to a point where it felt chaotic the number of scenarios that you put be put into rapidly or over time, um, that it made you solve problems that you perhaps never thought about before. And even learning how to solve a complex problem in one area of business can help you solve a complex um, problem in your business, if you've had exposure to doing enough of it because it helps you think differently. And I think that's the critical thing is that you've got to link what you want people to be able to do at work with the training and, and give them that experiential training to be able to help them to do that.
2: I really like that. That really resonates with me. Um, I don't see myself as the boss at work. Um, I see myself in service to the people that I work with. They don't work for me. I work with them. Um, and I try to provide and or be a provider of an environment they contribute to it as well that is a little bit um well is conducive to preparing them for for the for the thing that we do and the which is in line with what you were just saying Um, and it's it's a little bit chaotic sometimes but it's training so i almost think that our our business as usual before a client walks in is preparing my team to be leaders when the client walks in and they go on site. So, the work we do on our business internally, the navigation of uh, priorities, goals, etc., I completely let go of and let them do their thing. So, when a client walks in, they're primed, ready to go, and have that confidence and um, ability to reflect and be self aware. Um, I think it's really aligned with what you said. That really resonates with me. I think a light bulb just went off in my head, so that's good. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, Jim, I just wanted to sort of maybe ask something. I've you've um, sort of light bulbs gone off in terms of how do we prime people to get ready for situations? Because I know, you know, even before this podcast or before we sort of embark on on different challenges and different environments, it's we're human. We can't just go from A to B instantaneously i'd be interested to sort of know how you prime yourself before a big uh, challenge or, or, or back in the day a difficult mission i mean how do you actually prime yourself and get the leaders around you ready for something where you know they have to step up is it a combination of training or you know what's your internal process i guess um, to do something like that
0: to me it all starts with purpose why are we here and what are we trying to do so if the challenge is, for example, in two thousand, in end of 2000, I took over this military unit, and we knew that we were going to go to Timor 12 months later because we were on a rotation to go to Timor. Um, to me, it's about so we know what our purpose is. We need to go to Timor and achieve this purpose. Uh, everything then can fall into line and align with that purpose. Um, Because what it does is it provides you focus on what you need to be doing and how you need to be doing it, if you know the why. It's a bit of Simon Sinek's words to a point, if you know why, then the what and the how will follow. Um, But what we then did was, I think that that's the first part, understand the purpose. The next one I think was the ethos that we had, is that we can go and be an average player in the game, or we can go over there and do an outstanding job. And there's a bit of perfectionist in me that I wanted to, and there's a bit of competitiveness in me that I wanted our guys to be the best that had been there. So, all right, well, how do we do that? And I think they wanted to be that because everybody wants to achieve something at work and wants to, if they're well-supported, to achieve the best they can. Um, There are very few people who are well-supported who haven't got the motivation to do something well. So, again, the ethos that we were going to be well-prepared, and then it's actually Then the what and the how of what we're going to do over the next 12 months sort of came from that. But I think then it was that um, I I think it was that relentless preparation with the focus on that purpose and what we were trying to achieve, and just making sure that we were continually doing what needed to be done and we were getting that done. But we were doing it uh in in order of priority and making sure that we were working to priorities because you know you could have come up with a list of 500 things you wanted to do in a year but you're only going to achieve 20 of them um so why work on number 462 when you should be working on numbers 1 to 20. so it's about that priority and that focus and i think the other thing is to we had to make it a bit of fun and i think part of it is that um even a highly motivated team who is preparing for something that they have a strong belief in 12 months later, sometimes will get a little bit bored if what you're doing and how you're doing it to get to that end point um, is not fun because people want to enjoy themselves. And there are ways, it just needs a bit of creativity and a bit of innovation. Um, you know, it's a bit like training your staff. You can sit them around in the classroom and give them a lecture or do theoretical work or you can give them some experiential type thing where they actually have to do and practice being in the circumstance and this is why athletes use visualization as a technique i think is is they actually get themselves deep into that circumstance where they feel it and they can smell it and they know what the sounds in a stadium are going to be like and i'm sure kathy freeman had probably gone through that in preparation for winning a gold medal at the sydney olympics because yeah, if you read what she did, she even had the exact time that she wanted to run that day written down on a piece of paper, on her mirror, on a stick it note, years before, because she'd worked out, that's what I'm going to run on that night, and if I run that on that night I'm going to win. It, 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 it was about um, getting yourself ready for that, and I'd, I'd say that, you know, Drew Ginn's another one, a lot of the really good athletes that I've worked with. Um, they use creative visualisation to really absorb themselves and, and understand and helps them sort of understand that intention uh, of why I'm doing
1: something. There's no reason why um, everybody can't start to practice some of that creative visualisation. I mean, regardless of whether or not they're going to an Olympic event or something, I mean, I'd, I just reckon it's just a cracking tool um, that anybody can actually practice. It takes a little bit of repetition and time, but it's almost like a muscle the more you start to you know, let's say, practice your your meditation. Um, You start to drop your guard a little bit, get clear on your purpose, and then start to lead in some visualization. I'm starting to do a lot of that lately, and I'm finding the results remarkable every time. You create some space to sort of dissolve, drop your guard, uh, almost open up your heart a little bit around your purpose and and the why, and then you you let that visualization go through. I I just, I can't recommend that stuff enough.
0: Mm. But But again, some people might find it onerous. It's a bit like that meditation is it doesn't have to be for an hour, a few minutes, thinking about what's it gonna be like when I walk into a, a business meeting tomorrow um, where I know the environment might be a friendly one or a hostile one, the outcome I'm trying to seek, or who the players are in that room of just spending a couple of minutes getting a feel for what it's gonna be like when I walk into a room, even going and having a look at the, the meeting room if you haven't been there before, is just helps you sort of get that feel for what it's gonna be like because once you've got that feel and you've thought about it, if I were to give you a task to do right now that you hadn't done before, a lot of people um, just freeze because, well, I haven't been in this circumstance before, what do I do? But if they've had at least think about it and know a little bit about what it's going to be like it just helps people be a little bit more confident and it helps them really reach that that aim for me was that relentless prep. that's why I called it relentless preparation I
2: love that term and that's probably exactly what Kathy Freeman did she was always prepared for that moment um, and she's relentlessly preparing in her own mind uh, visualising that moment Um, yeah really powerful I'm interested in negotiation. It's a key thing with leadership, and I'm, I'd love to hear um, uh, your insight and even from your experience moments where you've had to uh, negotiate yourself out of um, a sticky situation or a complex situation, because um, you know the art of negotiation or making uh, hits at decision making, but also the art of negotiating it um, at really um, complex and 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 f- almost frightening times is is really fascinating and key part of leadership as well
0: yeah absolutely I, I would i would not i've never really thought of myself as a negotiator but i think on reflection i've got the ability to negotiate and again i'm thankful for my military training to be able to use that and i had to use it one day and i'll tell you a story in a, in a second but I think the first thing for me that's important is to be aware of the situation that you're in um, and know that your default way of handling a certain circumstance when you come up with a difficult person or a person where you're having some conflict with is not necessarily going to work in every circumstance or in many circumstances. Uh, And often because what seems rational to me of how I might deal with a circumstance Mm isn't necessarily working because I'm dealing with in some of these hostile negotiations and difficult circumstances with someone who's being irrational and therefore it's just not going to work and that's really important to to understand that. Now I've got a mate of mine who's a really really great negotiator. I've got a couple of friends who are great negotiators that have helped me in the past as well but I remember one of them has always said to me "Um, understand what your interests are but understand what the interests of the other party are as well because once you can understand that, um, that helps you navigate your way through a negotiation. And the example I'd give you in in 1994, I was one of the first Australians to arrive in Rwanda. And the situation was that the Rwandan Patriotic Front, which became the Rwandan Patriotic Army, uh, was the newly formed military of the newly formed government, Tutsi uh, dominated who'd taken over after the genocide where the Hutus had previously ruled for about 27, 30 years. Um, so they were in, there was a new government, there was a new army, um, and regardless of what you thought of them, they um, often were young, drugged, alcohol-fueled, poorly dressed, poorly disciplined soldiers. They'd been through a lot. they just fought a very tough war to win their country back and achieve something that was really important to them. Uh, Now we were actually, I was part of the United Nations, sent there to help them re-establish the country. (coughs) So we're actually supposed to be on the same side. But around about midnight one night, I drove up to a checkpoint and I got held up by a group of Rwandan soldiers at gunpoint. And not only from about five or six metres away did I have a machine gun and a number of rifles pointed directly at me, I had a young officer sort up to my um, vehicle and hold a pistol at my head and for whatever reason they were not going to let me through. Now I had a pistol strapped to my leg um, that I quickly assessed that if I went to draw that I was probably going to be dead before I got it out of the holster. So my normal default because I was very confident in my ability to fight my way out of a situation wasn't going to work. And Thankfully, I got put in a situation where I had a moment to reflect because I knew that what I would normally do wasn't going to work. And I thought, what are their interests here? And really what it was, because we're actually supposed to be on the same side, is that these guys wanted to flex their muscle. They are very proud and very excited about what they'd just achieved and they wanted to be recognised for that. And therefore, um, they wanted to look good in front of anybody whether it was their enemies certainly but whether it was their friends or people from outside of the country they wanted to look good and they wanted to show a bit of strength and show a bit of muscle and show off a bit and so what I did was thankfully realising this I calmed the situation down and just spoke to the young officer who I outranked by a number of ranks um, and just started having a conversation with him. And I started to have a conversation around that were playing to his interests. And I remember telling him very vividly, you look very impressive tonight. You've set your checkpoint up very well, very professional, great job. Your soldiers look like they're really switched on. Um, May I talk to your soldiers? And I remember he looked at me as if to say, where's this going? And I just leaned out my window a little bit and I said, "Um, you have a very fine young officer commanding your team men and you are all doing a great job and as soon as I did that I had actually played to their interests and you know patted their ego a little bit to a point where all of a sudden um, going from having guns pointed at me and not knowing whether I was going to be shot by irrational people who whilst there was a chance I wasn't going to be shot I could have been shot in a heartbeat um, to him quickly looking at these soldiers and just um, motioning to move the checkpoint and let me go. And it was over within probably 10 minutes, uh, but it was over within a minute or two of me having this conversation with him, but playing to his interests, which happened to match mine in a negotiation sense, because my interest was just, the, just to go home alive uh, and to get out of the place without being shot. Um, so really, was I was satisfying mine, but really highlighting his, and uh, to me, that's was the key.
1: Yeah, and, and just, uh I guess you've, you've touched upon something there, Reg. You've, it sounds like you've had to still your mind and calm your mind enough to actually just drop your adrenaline enough to actually see what the options were, and that's probably a, a critical tool.
0: Uh, yeah, and I haven't, I haven't always been able to do that. I mean, it, it's a, it's, um, it was just that moment in time where the switch goes from stop. Put aside your default, which was an aggressive, well-trained, um, very professional default position that I would start with uh, because I knew it wasn't going to work, and just say, stop, what's another way? Because I think, th- I think one of the things I pride myself is that i probably even best when I'm in a corner and I have to find a way to get out of the corner, like the solving the problem with Jim Garrison, in Iraq or solving this particular problem and many other problems similar to that over the years is that um, perhaps my ability to just understand that, um, right, I'm here now and I need to move from this position which just happens to be this dangerous or, or difficult corner that I'm in, how do I do that and just work my way through it? Amazing.
2: I could talk for a while, but we have
1: to wrap up, unfortunately. It's been really, really great, Reg. And, um, you know, I think uh, Jim and I uh, really enjoyed the frankness, the openness, and and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of just some of the practical uh, advice and tools um, that I guess Reg has talked about during today's podcast. You really can apply across your life. Um, That's the important sort of takeaway, I think. Yeah. I'm interested in your question. Did you come up with anything?
0: Yeah well there's a million questions I could ask but the one that I chose is have you made a real difference to somebody's life today as a leader and there's no right or wrong answer Um, if the answer to that is yes um, well done keep doing it do it again tomorrow but if it's no I haven't made that difference um, have you got the opportunity to reflect and then commit yourself to go to work tomorrow and do it tomorrow. So it's really two questions. Have I made a difference? And if not, um, can I do it? Can I try harder tomorrow? I love it. It's,
2: it's a that pretty that powerful that way to, to end. Thank you so much, Ridge. It's been a privilege. Thank you, Thank you so Pleasure, much.
0: Pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
2: Terrific. Fearless is produced by Jim Antonopoulos and Damien Carolla. We broadcast from the Georges Building in Collins Street, Melbourne. Your questions, your insights and your ideas will help us feed future episodes.